trying to give some thought as to just exactly how to uh, approach the meeting this weekend, or, or specifically the uh, communion portion. We, by now, you know that I'm just a weird person. We do things weird ways around here, but uh, we're always different, so that we don't. The purpose is not to get attached to one specific method and forget about the reason that we're here. Um, and so there, there was a particular thought that had occurred to me uh, a few days ago as I was uh, reading some things that pertain to this. So for just for right now, we'd like to begin in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. We'll read a little bit here in this passage. It is not the uh, complete intent to analyze uh, every portion of the communion uh, with, the, uh, with the wine and with the uh, unleavened bread and explain all of those. Uh, we want to take a broader step this morning uh, for a few minutes. And we just want to look at the person of Christ himself. Because really, especially when you get into uh, the book of Ephesians and Colossians, when Paul is instructing these two churches and he's laying out how the Christian home uh, should operate, everything that a wife is supposed to be is connected directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that a husband is supposed to be is connected directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that children are to do for their parents and parents are to do for their children, big surprise, connected directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not about things that surround Christ. It's about Christ himself. Oftentimes, this is a point that we try and, and impress so much upon people. That when you're choosing someone to marry, it's not always about how they look. It's not always about fun times you have with them. Because looks will decay. Times will become harder. Character is what matters most. In the life of Christ, his outward appearance changed. Not from the standpoint that he grew from a little boy to a grown man, but from the standpoint that what he looked like hanging on the cross was so horrific you can't imagine it. His circumstances around him changed. From the standpoint of him feeding, you know, multitudes with just a few loaves and fishes to him being crucified on a cross. The congregations and groups around him loved him when he was multiplying the loaves and multiplying the breads and, and feeding them. It's easy to judge success 
sometimes by the world's reaction to you. It's a whole lot different to judge success by God's reaction. Because yet there was a prophet in the Old Testament that the Lord told him, I said, I'm going to send you to the house of Israel. But by the way, when you go, they won't hear. So he was, in a sense, ineffective, yet successful. He was ineffective with God's people, yet he was successful because he did what God told him to do. But in everything that occurred in the life of Christ, the character of Christ never changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Now, let's pause right there just for a second because as we mentioned last weekend, that's one of the hard things about the Bible is you, is you sometimes don't realize how important the minor things are. Paul is saying to this church at Corinth, these things that I have received, I have delivered unto you. We live in a generation that doesn't care about the former generation. They think if they can tag something old or traditional, then they think they can tag it as outdated and unnecessary. What does Paul say? Paul says, what I've received, I delivered to you. And what I've delivered to you, you ought to receive. Stop judging things by whether or not they're outdated by society standards. Ask whether or not this is God's standard. If it's God's standard, it's never outdated. For I've received of the Lord. Here's a pattern for observing. I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. <clears throat> for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do shew the Lord's death till he come. Paul is laying out before us here this great purpose. Uh, in observing the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper here. That as often as you do it, it is not commanded that we obey it every Sunday, nor is it commanded that we only obey it once a year. We, we could do this multiple times if we so choose, and probably might ought to once in a while, to remind ourselves of our purpose in life is to serve Christ by serving others. 
Our purpose in life is not to see how close we by ourselves can get to God. We are to serve Christ and serve God by serving others. It's often been said that a measure of a man's spirituality and his relationship with God can be measured by his relationship to his fellow man. Even John said that. Even John said in his little epistles, he said, you know, if a man says, I love God and he's not seen him, how can he really, you know, say that he loves God when he sees his brother and hates his brother who he does see? Continuing on, he says in verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The purpose of, of meeting here and observing this is to recognize that the individual for whom this service is for. It is true that we should be wary of the society that's around us and the things that we allow into our circle. But at the same time, constantly criticizing society around you and not considering your own self is like an individual who defecates throughout their whole house and then is angry at somebody else who sneezes. You have to take a look at your own self first. Examine yourself. There is an unworthiness that can be connected to this. And for the most part, Paul is, is speaking about an unworthily way of doing it. No person in here is worthy of this. If we're talking about personhood of being worthy, every one of you should leave right now. Paul was addressing the unworthy, number one, way they were doing it. They were turning it into a drunken feast. And in so doing, they were forgetting what this is about. It's about sacrifice. Because Paul mentions in verse 27 that what he has delivered unto them is this teaching that, uh, verse 23, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, did something. And we want to kind of look a little bit about that. In the, in the very night in which he was betrayed, he did a thing. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a self-sacrificing life and a selfless life. Everything about him was selfless. And self-sacrificing. That's why it says in John 15 and verse 13, this, you may not know the book, chapter, and verse for this, but you know this verse. Greater love hath 
no man than that a man lay down his life for his friends. I don't think we really understand the weight of that verse. I don't think a lot of people, well, excuse me, I I think a lot of people really don't understand how heavy that that verse is. I as a husband don't understand it. You as a husband, you as a wife don't understand this. Because many people will stand up and they will talk about, oh, how much I love them, I would die for you. And yet you won't even pick up your dirty sock off the floor. If you won't even do something so simple as clean out the laundry when your wife asked you to, don't tell me how much you love her and you'll die for her. You won't even rake leaves for her. And don't tell me how much you love your husband. How much you would die for your husband. If you can't even pack him a lunch every day. Getting real ugly, isn't it? That's why this is not about us. This is about God. Who lived selfless and self-sacrificing. And gave himself for us. When you turn to, uh, example, the, the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, we, uh, we see an, uh, a description of the character of Christ in his selfless and self-sacrificing uh, way in which he lived and that he showed us the way to live. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Well, you know what? Verse 2. Philippians 2.2 2 says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Oh, how much better, how much better would your home be if the husband and the wife lived like-minded, if they had the same love, they were of one accord, and one mind. For the most part, the greatest difficulty that we have as husbands and wives is that we have different opinions about the same thing and the constant struggle is who gets to be in charge? Right? You know who ought to be in charge? Christ ought to be in charge. It ought to be the idea as a family, Lord, what would Thou have us to do? But this, this is difficult. I'm not saying that this is easy, right? This is difficult. We recognize that this is what we struggle with on a day-to-day basis. It's easy for Christ to have done this, though. He didn't have the sin in Him that we have. But yet, this is a pattern that he gave to us. Because Paul would also go on to say in in chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife 
or vainglory. Oh, how much does strife fill the homes of those who call themselves Christians? How much does arguing occur and, and uneasiness occur within the Christian home because dominance of one or the other is occurring and not things being done through strife, uh, 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 things being done without strife and without vainglory. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Who being in the form of God, and the term form here means exact likeness and nature. He being God come in the flesh. Really, he being God come in the flesh had the right to come into this world and say, I created you and all things around. Everyone bow to me now. He could have done that. What did he do? He thought it not robbery to be equal with God because you can't steal something that belongs to you. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He not only showed us the right way to live, but he showed us the right way to treat others around us. In John 19, Jesus is here hanging upon the cross. It won't be long that he will leave this world here. He is hanging in agony. He is hanging there in disgrace. He's hanging naked and humiliated. In John 19, verse 25, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, His mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. There's at least four people at the foot of his cross. In a minute, we're going to see there's actually a fifth one there. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, and this, this phrase, the disciple whom he loved, you can trace this all the way through the Gospel of John. It's... The Apostle John is who this is. John, though, I, I like the way he writes this. Because he's not writing about, he's writing about himself and trying not to. When Jesus therefore saw his mother 
and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Everything that Jesus did in this instance, he did for someone else. Hanging naked and ashamed, humiliated, despised by all those around him, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Can you imagine Jesus taking the same attitude that a lot of people do? I'm not going to do it because I don't like it. I'm not going to do it because it's not convenient. I'm not going to do it. What about me? See, when we said that he lives this selfless and self-sacrificing life, uh, that is often in contrast to human beings and their self-esteem life. Don't you, you hear that a lot now? Oh, you got to protect somebody's self-esteem. Build up a child's self-esteem. Uh, is, that, is that your child expressing his self-esteem down there at the schoolhouse with a gun? Yeah, he's, he thinks so much of himself and so little of everybody else. But even, even the, the disciples are, they're an interesting bunch. So, for example, if you turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke 22. In the Gospel of Luke 22, Jesus has just told them that, that this is a, the four Gospels give uh, different accounts of the night that Jesus was betrayed and the night that he instituted his supper. And here in Luke 22, he's instituted the supper. He's given the bread and the wine. And he, he's telling them, notice verse 21. Luke 22, 21 says, But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? Ah, oh, somebody's going to betray the Lord. Something's going to happen to him. Which of us is going to do it? And the one of us that doesn't do it, which of us is better than the other? Isn't that great? Isn't it? The Lord is telling them, I'm fixing to be crucified, buried in the tomb. And they're trying to figure out who's going to take his place. Who's going to stand up now and be number one? If Peter was the first pope of the church, this would have been a real good place for Jesus to have said that. But the pope is not the head of the church. He never has been and never will be. None of us are the head of the church. It's always been Christ. But what is their self-esteem here? Well, Christ is going away. We've got to leave somebody in charge. And then, not only that, but when you look at uh, the Gospel of Matthew 26... Matthew 26, there's something that occurs. Matthew 26, verse 35, Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. 
I'll never leave thee. I'll never, I'll, I'll die for thee. And of course, what, we know what happened to this, don't we? we? We know what Jesus said unto him. But what do we see about this little verse right here? Number one, the disciples were overconfident in their ability to be faithful. So the next time that you're concerned about somebody who's let you down in life, big surprise, right? Stop worrying about who's let you down. You need to start worrying that you've let the Lord down. But you need to count your blessings. He's never let you down. See, they were overconfident in their ability, and they were also then liars, right? They were liars. Like what said all this, we'll never leave thee. In uh, in what Jesus did, it really is just sort of a miraculous and outstanding thing. John 13 is a passage we often turn to for the foot washing. I would encourage you to go home and read this entire chapter. Read it carefully. Because I think oftentimes we miss something about this. When Jesus gave His supper, and He knelt and washed the feet of the disciples, in His pattern of showing us how to live and showing us how to treat other people, this very night that He was betrayed, Jesus knew the one that would betray Him, Judas Iscariot. The Bible reminds us of that multiple occasions. Judas who betrayed. Judas the thief. Judas who betrayed. The Lord was aware of the one who would deny him. That was the Apostle Peter. That as Jesus has been arrested in the middle of the night, Peter follows him, but Peter follows from a distance. And he's outside warming his hands by the fire of the wicked while the Lord is in there being betrayed and the Lord is in there being ridiculed. And it is in that night that he is asked three times, aren't you one of his? And three times he denies, and the third time he looks up, and the Lord is looking right at him. It's, it's real easy to be confident in yourself as you criticize others around you until the Lord looks right at you. It said that Peter went out and wept bitterly. He knew the one that would betray him. He knew the one that would deny him. And he also knew that all would forsake him. But you want to know one of the most outstanding things about this chapter? The one who would betray him, Judas. The one who would deny him, Peter. Those who would forsake him, not only the twelve, but everybody else in you. We're all in this room. And he gave supper to all of them. And he knelt and washed all of them's feet. 
those that betrayed him, those that denied him, and those that would forsake him in just a few hours. The God of glory that would hang upon a cross because of you and because of me would have knelt and washed your feet that night. Knowing full well that in just a few hours you would consent his crucifixion. You know, if Jesus can do that and still welcome you home to glory, your petty problems don't mean anything. Your differences in your home don't mean anything. Stop trying to act like your house has a higher stand of holiness than heaven does. Stop trying to act like your soul has a higher standard of holiness than God does. The moment that we start working on ourselves and stop trying to fix everybody around us, It's the moment you start taking the right steps towards discipleship. We want to be like Christ. There's something I'm doing as a husband that is just annoying the fire out of my wife. I ought to be willing to change it regardless of how ridiculous it is. I'm not very good at that. Because it's ridiculous. Stop asking me to do that. But he ought to be willing to change it, right? And all the wives said, Amen. If you're doing something that is annoying your husband, that is a ridiculous thing, stop doing it. Easy to say, right? The whole question is whether or not this means anything. Is this just something we're going to go through once a year because, uh, you know, we're a Christian church and we got to have communion. We're just going to go through it once a year and cover it over at the end and be done with it? Or is this something that's going to mean something in our life? When we have the foot washing here in a little bit, um, we usually break up men on one side, women on the other side. Uh, it's it's a respectful thing because some man who is not married to some woman in here does not need to be at her feet washing her feet, you know, as she's sitting in a dress. It's just a reasonable thing. But there's something that occurred to me, you know, a little while back that Something I've never seen at a church like this is that I've never seen husbands wash their wives' feet. They wash everybody else's. The wives wash everybody else's. The husbands wash their... But they never wash each other's. I'm confident that there's some of y'all in here probably been at each other's throats this week. You probably need to be at each other's feet right now. I'm not going to tell you to do that. I'm not going to say it has to be done. 
But it's something I've never seen at any other church, and I always want to know why. Why don't the husbands wash the wives' feet? Why don't their wives wash their husbands' feet? Why don't they, in the spirit of holiness and the spirit of God, come together at this time and submit themselves one to another in the fear of the Lord? Why don't we do that? I can't say because of tradition, because that doesn't work. That might, ought not, that might need to be done at some point. Because as we said earlier, it doesn't matter what kind of congregation you have. Congregations only as strong as the families that go to make it up. Which is also another reason that you ought to marry a Christian person within the church, within your particular organization, within within the primitive Baptist, you ought to marry somebody because they ought to believe the same way that you do. They ought to have the same understanding of what we're doing here that you have. They ought to see Christ as the purpose for this. And they ought to have the same love for it that you ought to have. We'll conclude our thoughts with this right now. And if Brother Roger will come around and uh, we'll sing a few hymns uh, that we normally sing with the communion service. And then we'll begin in that. And we'll discontinue this uh, Facebook post. Thank you.